Welcome again to City Life. It's Saturday evening. If you got your Bibles, you can open them up to Revelation chapter 1. I'll be meeting you there in just a minute. Revelation chapter 1. We are what? Second weekend of February already. We're rolling through the year. And believe it or not, Easter is going to be here before we know it. And I can prove it because the sermon series we're about to start is going to be eight weeks. And it's going to lead us all the way up to Easter. All the way to Easter. It's going to be seven weeks. It's going to be called Seven or Dear Seven Cities based on seven messages from Jesus to seven churches in seven cities in the book of Revelation. You know, there's a book called Jesus Calling. It was like a devotional written from the perspective of Jesus where every day it was like Jesus was speaking to you. And this was released about five years ago. And in those five years, 14 million copies have sold. So we are a people hungry to hear from Jesus. And yet, before any author had a chance to put words in Jesus' mouth, Jesus was writing letters, the resurrected Jesus writing to his people, the church. And it's in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I want to go through it because I believe it still speaks to the church today. Both the church universal, uh, individual churches like our own, and people within the church like you and like me. But if you remember this time last year, we were in a sermon series called Myth Busting. And it was about how if you don't consider the context of Scripture and the greater content of Scripture, it's so easy to take a verse or a passage and misapply it and misquote it or put words in God's mouth that were not supposed to be there. So I want to tonight, before we jump into the seven letters themselves, provide context. How, does the, how do these messages even come, right? Who's receiving them? Who's speaking them? I want to look at that tonight. And it all happens in Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 9. It says in Revelation 1 verse 9 that I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the seven cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. I'm going to work on that before that week. I'm working on that one. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a large robe, long robe, with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he said, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. For I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, this word that was written so many years ago that still speaks to us today. 
God, I pray that tonight you would expand our minds and our perspectives of you, that you would grow our hearts and our love for one another, and you would affirm our identity as your sons and your daughters. Thank you, Lord God, for what you want to speak tonight. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, bring fruit from it. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. So that's some uh, crazy mail, right? What's the craziest mail you've ever received? You don't have to raise your hands, but we live in a <laughs> day and age where whether it's paper mail, email, voicemail, you can get some, some wild email or wild mail, any kind of mail. You know, before voicemails, you guys remember landlines and answering machines, right? One, two, three, four rings. And after the fourth ring, it would cut right to the answering machine where there was a prepared message on a tape. And then whatever the person said would be recorded on that tape. You could play it back later. You had to rewind it, play it, all that jazz. And we lived like savages back then, right? We couldn't see who was calling us when the phone call was coming in. And that, for my personality type, that's terrifying, right? So I had like the answering machine technique where you let it ring four times, it goes to the answering machine, and then you could hear who was talking and then pick it up right away. Now this backfired like when it was mom and she'd be like, Justin, I know you're there, pick up the phone. But sometimes it would save you, right? And, and our last name is White. So my dad, um, one of the messages on this answer machine was like, you have reached the White House. You know, we hope you have a great day, you leave a message, yada, yada. So you can imagine twice in my childhood, not once but twice, there were people that were like, oh, my goodness. And this one lady was super excited. She's like, say hello to Bill and Hillary for me. Like, I did not, I didn't know how I even got this number. That's probably never happened to you, right? But your last name's not White. But uh, some wild, unreal messages that aren't all that common, and like the uh, Nigerian prince email. Anybody got this one? Right? It's been around for 10 years. And get this. This email that's been around for 10 years in various forms, that Anne Hathaway joked on SNL 10 years ago, is still being used today and makes 700 grand annually. $700,000 are scammed from people through this same email that's been being used for over a decade now. And what happens is it's, it's a Nigerian prince, right, who has all this money. Some of you are familiar. Maybe you're like, what is he even talking about? And uh, he's got all this money. He's trying to put it in a foreign bank account. And in order to do so, he needs somebody who's not a Nigerian citizen. That's where you come in. And you get to give that person your bank account information and, a, like, a deposit so you got skin in the game. And It works. In the year of our Lord, 2020, to the tune of $700,000 a year. And when a scam's been around this long, there's, there's variations. Like I found out there's a variation where it's, it's a Nigerian astronaut. Mind you, still Nigerian. But a Nigerian astronaut that was left in space by the Russians in 1990. And being in space that long has earned $15 million. But first got to raise the funds to bring him back. <laughs> and this works in the year of our Lord, 2020, to the tune of $700,000 a year. But this, you can file this away under the whole Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun because apparently in the 19th century, there was something called the Spanish prisoner scam where you would get a letter and there was somebody who was falsely imprisoned, a wealthy person, mind you, falsely imprisoned in Spain, and they needed your help and your money to get out of prison. And then, of course, they'd give you some, some money. And even then, same scam. And I'll share all that because we've long been conditioned. When we open our email, we open our mailbox, we're like, is this even real? Or like, this is a scam. So can you imagine Monday after work, you stop by your mailbox, you pull out a letter, and it's postmarked Jesus Christ. 
Like how quickly do you just kind of skim it, throw it away, or think this is spam, this is ridiculous. And yet here in Revelation, there are seven churches in seven cities that get a letter delivered by a messenger where this messenger is like, hey, look, you got mail, and it's from Jesus. Like these are the words of Jesus for you and your church. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection, which makes it even more unbelievable in the moment. I'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Right? You, have, you have mail from Jesus. And we sit in a region where a lot of us come from multiple cities. This church is in Suffolk. Go that way a couple miles. It's Carrollton. We got people that come from Portsmouth, Chesapeake, Norfolk, and this region that is called, fondly, the Seven Cities. And I believe that the letters to these churches can speak volumes of timeless truths, again, to the church universal, to our church, and to individuals within the church. But again, tonight I didn't want to just jump into the messages without context. Tonight I want to look at the recipient, John, who's giving it, Jesus, and what that means, what we see of Jesus, and then what it all means to us personally. But first, again, John is the one who receives it, and it says in Revelation 1, verse 9, that I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. And then he gives one of those record scratch, where it's like a record scratch, and you might wonder how I got here, right, on the island of Patmos in exile. And he says, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Listen, if anybody put down their testimony, their biography in a book, I'm not sure anybody could fill a book quite like John. Because here's the cliff notes of how it would read. John met Jesus when he was a young man, likely in his teens. He became one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And we see in the Gospels that he's one of the three that Jesus held a close kinship with and took almost anywhere. So he witnessed as many miracles, healings, exorcisms as anyone. And he was one of the three disciples to witness the transfiguration, one of the three disciples who Jesus took with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. He was the only disciple that we know of that was at the cross when Jesus died. And he was there with Peter at the empty tomb when it was discovered he had risen. And then he was there when Jesus ascended to heaven. And John goes on to write not only his gospel account of John, but first, second, and third John, and then eventually the book of Revelation. But mind you, as he lived into old age, he saw all the other disciples murdered, martyred, and killed. And according to church history, John himself, they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, but he didn't die. He kept living. So simple and plain, this guy's been through a lot, right? Highs and lows, peaks and valleys, some of the highest peaks and some of the lowest lows. And now he's exiled to this rocky, rough, rugged terrain of Patmos, which is basically the Roman kingdom's Alcatraz. He's just sent out there in exile, and and many put him between 90 and 100 years old. That's not my retirement plan. But here he is living out the end of his life amidst this penal colony that's about a mile wide and six miles long of just rugged, rough, rocky terrain. And it's here that Jesus comes to John. And I share this detail because some of us need to hear tonight that God encounters can come in places that seem like banishment. That nobody and nothing can banish you from God's presence. Nobody and nothing, I think Steph might have said it during worship, nobody and nothing can shut the door that Jesus has opened into God's presence for you. Now, will it look like Revelations 1 for you? Probably not. If so, call me. I want in, right? But... Visions can come in a place that seems like banishment. Nobody can cancel the promises 
invitations of God in Scripture to encounter him. Psalm 23 talks about his rod and his staff. His presence are with us, is with us in the valley. That in the presence of our enemy, he prepares a table for us. That's a table of communion with him, even in the presence of our enemies. And John is living out the truth of Psalm 139 that I really don't want to test out myself, but where it says, I can never get away from your presence. Even if I dwell by the farthest oceans right, or exiled onto a tiny island, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. And I don't want to rush past this, again, that no circumstance can cancel your relationship, expel you from God's presence. No personal or proverbial patmos can get in the way of your worship. But my question is, if Jesus walked in on you like he walks in on John, some of the worst days of your life, will he find you worshiping? Right? Would, would he find you worshiping? Do you praise even on your worst days? Because it's what he finds John doing. John is worshiping on the Lord's day when he knew all these other churches that he'd been involved with would have been worshiping. And you know what's wild to me is Jesus shows up. And again, John is one of his closest friends from when he walked and ministered on earth. And I figure he'd at least spend a couple minutes maybe catching up with John, right? Asking him some questions, maybe letting John ask him some questions, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Like, I'm sure John had questions about why all the other disciples had to die, why they all suffered so much. Where were you when I was being boiled in a pot of oil, right? Why have you not delivered me from this rock? But Jesus doesn't show up and provide answers to individual questions. It reminds me of like Job, where Job had question after question, demand after demand, and God doesn't show up to address the questions. He just shows up in all his power because God is the answer, right? He's the only answer that we need, right? God knows that more often than not, we don't need company in our woe is me from him, right? We, we provide company for one another. What we need to be reminded of is who is he, who he is to us, and what that means for us. When circumstances engulf my vision, I need a fresh picture of who God is and who I am in him. Because when I'm at my lowest, my hope is still not in my circumstance. My hope is in nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that doesn't change. Even at my lowest, I need a reminder of who he is and who I am in him. So Jesus shows up to John in all his glory. Not carpenter Jesus, not baby Jesus. Jesus from the throne room of heaven in all his glory before John. And it says, John says, I fell before him like I was dead, right? Just falls flat in his presence. It's a common response in scripture. You know, a common <laughs> description of the fear of God these days, though, is like, oh, it's, it's a healthy respect. It's a healthy awe. That's not what I read in scripture. That's fear of the Lord. Like, God is our father. Jesus says call him Abba. You can call him Daddy God if that floats your boat. Just remember, Abba has a deep, deep, deep respect culturally. Jesus is our brother, but Jesus isn't our homeboy, right? And the Holy Spirit is more than Casper the friendly ghost, right? That's why the number one command in all of Scripture is fear not. Because fear is an appropriate common response to God and all of his uncommon otherworldly glory. But then Jesus basically gives John a second command. Get up and let's talk about the church. Jesus almost immediately redirects his concern and focus to the church. He shifts the focus from me to we. And this may seem wild to us again. Like, he didn't want to talk to John for at least a minute about all that's happened. But John doesn't seem phased by this in the least. The church and the camaraderie of the church family was a part of his DNA. The words we read tonight, he addresses the church in his introduction saying, I am your brother and partner. 
Again, you look at John's biography, what he'd been through, how he'd walk with Jesus. This was like the most authoritative figure in all of the church, breathing oxygen in that day. And he addresses all these people, new believers and knuckleheads, as we'll see in coming weeks, as brothers and sisters and partners in the gospel. He doesn't for an instant talk about them like they're beneath him. Because we can get into this weird biblical hierarchy with with platforms. Yes, God places pastors over us and leaders over us that we're to follow as they follow Christ, but they're also at the same time our brothers and sisters. They stand at the same foot of the same cross, read the same Bible, (laughs) pray the same way. John calls the people in these churches brothers and sisters. And again, as we'll see in upcoming weeks in these letters, a lot of them were knuckleheads. (laughs) And a lot of them were screwing up royally. And yet where, when we read this passage, is Jesus? Where is he standing and where is he walking? John writes, he says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of these lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Now, while Revelation is full of prophetic pictures and images and things that happen that are obscure, and we're probably not going to know this side of heaven, these lampstands don't fit that bill. God courteously lets us know at the end of this passage, these seven lampstands are the seven churches. And I don't know whether they looked like this here, right, like a a lampstand with seven uh, branches coming out of it, or I've seen it illustrated with seven candlesticks, individual candlesticks coming up from the ground. But the seven-branched candle holder, also known as the menorah, right, was extremely symbolic for God's people, the Israelites. When we think of the Jewish people or the Israelites, I think often in our culture we'll think of the Star of David. But when you look at archaeology, you look at history, their place in in Roman history, this was most often the number one symbol for the Jewish people. This this lampstand that would have been in the tabernacle marking the presence of God. Again and again, this was used to be a symbol for God's people. And yet here... In the New Testament age of the church, in the New Testament, where God's people are neither Israelite or Jew or Gentile, neither black or white, or vote red or vote blue, we're all one people under the blood of Christ in his church, there's the lampstand. It's his church. His New Testament people is the church. Where is Jesus amidst the church? And this passage is so powerful to me, and I want to highlight it tonight because it's one of the places in Scripture where we see most clearly That Jesus, God, is in the midst of his church, working through his church. And again, bear in mind, the seven churches that these lampstands represent are busted, ratchet. Uh, Jesus calls one basically atrophied. The other, you're all but dead, right? Like these are the churches that Jesus is in the midst of. But where is he? Still with the church. Even though it's imperfect, even though it sometimes misses the mark, even though it's run by imperfect people, right? Jesus is still in the midst of his church. It's the vessel he uses. And then it also says in this passage that he holds seven stars. Some translations say seven angels. Some say seven messengers. So you read different commentaries, different opinions. Some people are like, it's the messengers that carried the letter. Others are like, it's the pastor of the churches. Others would say it's, it's angels, right? Guardian angels of those churches. Speaking to Ephesians 6, that we battle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. But we don't know. All that, we don't know for sure. But the seven stars is interesting to me, maybe only to me, but we're about to find out. Because bear with me, for most of human history, 
coming out of this period, it was believed that seven planets and stars orbited Earth, right? That Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the sun, and the moon orbited us. This became like the infallible, unquestioned truth in history. Like the Greeks subscribed to this. It's called the geocentric model. The geocentric model. And on surface level, it makes sense. Because standing on the surface of the earth, the earth doesn't seem to move. And it seems like everything is going around us. Again, it's called the geocentric model. And it wasn't until about the 16th century that we started to question it and move away from it. And we realized, oh, we're actually moving at 67,000 miles per hour, right? I don't feel those Gs, but we're going around the earth at 60, excuse me, the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. And I share all this for a reason, because when we're born into our flesh, we think the world revolves around us. We're reminded constantly by Raj. I'm sure you're reminded by your young ones that you're born and you think everything is about you. And that's why we call, or, or many people have called family the school of love. Because you realize, oh, it's, it's actually bigger than just me. And as you grow, you grow in this awareness. And just as the earth was created and set in orbit around the sun, you're made a new creation. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, and you're made a new creation upon repentance and you're placed in orbit around Jesus. Stuff doesn't revolve around you. You live for Jesus. And just the same way that brilliant minds with the best intentions held to this geocentric model for centuries and hundreds of years, we too can get it twisted with what you could call the meocentric model where everything revolves around me and God just becomes a priority amidst other priorities that orbit us. And we get to say, oh, you go here, or maybe you're behind this thing, or you're, you're the closest thing in orbit, but you're still compartmentalized in one priority out of many priorities, the meocentric model. But Ephesians 1 Verses 20 through 23 in the message version. If you could pull that up, Ben, I don't think my clicker is working. But it's Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, where it reads, All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all and has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. It's in the church where Christ speaks and acts and fills everything with his presence. Conclusion, I want to be there. Right? Sign me up for that. You look at the planets in orbit around the sun, Pluto does anybody know whether Pluto is currently a planet? I know since I was in high school, it's gone in and out of the solar system. What's dwarf planet? See, I knew Mike wouldn't know. It's a dwarf planet. Is, it, uh, is that the other name for a, a Plutoid? That's what I got in my notes, right? It's so small in mass and so far out in orbit that since I've been in high school, it's become a planet and not a planet a half dozen times. And a Plutoid, dwarf planet, right, is further out in space than Neptune. And as far as I know, there's three of them. Correct me, Mike, if I'm wrong. Uh, I got the names, though, Pluto, Eris, and Maki Maki. I looked up the pronunciation. But my point in all this is this. If you place yourself far enough from the church and the community of faith that Christ is in the midst of and infuses with his presence, you can lose your distinguishing characteristics altogether to where you look just like the world. You want to look like Christ. It's not rocket science. We understand that Jesus says to follow him, and if you're following him, it won't be long until you follow him into his body 
the church. Because where is Jesus? Amidst the churches. In the midst of them. In the middle of them. And he's still walking and still working through his church. In the midst, in the middle of it. You know, modern thought, and many Eastern religions would tell you, if you want to find God, a spark of the divine, then look inside of you. Right? Look inward and you'll find God. Pantheism and some other religions would tell you, if you want to find God, go out into creation. Go climb the highest mountain and you'll, you'll find a glimpse of God there, a spark of the divine. There's biblical truth to those, right? God created us. We're created in the image of God. God created creation and said it's good. But the Bible makes it clear. You want to be filled with his presence. Encounter God in a real way. Know him deeper. That's going to take you into the church, not away from it. All right, so as we're in this series, questions we should ask is, what would Jesus say about our church? What would he say about my involvement? What would he say about his place in my heart? Is he at the center? <laughs> Am I living with a, a model of life where God and Jesus are at the center? Or is he just in orbit somewhere? I give him a, an orbit in my life. These letters to these churches in these seven cities will serve for, as a springboard for our discussion. But this prologue shows us one thing that I don't want to leave without hammering in tonight. In John's life and in his writing, what we see is that our faith doesn't make our future in Christ suffering free, but it does make us suffering proof. Well, like your life and your future in Christ isn't going to be without tribulation, but it will, be out, it will be tribulation proof. And we can endure because our hope endures. Because, again, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the cross and grave, they're not going to change. And so maybe what's key for you tonight, though, is like, okay, I get that, but how do I endure? How do I live a life like John's? Well, yeah, I might have been close to Jesus for what felt like a season, but now I've, I've been getting hit again and again for years. How do I endure like John did? How does my worship continue even in seasons of weeping? How do I praise even on my worst days? And the recipe for John, who endured so much for nearly a century, the recipe is right here in the verse we opened with. That I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. And in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. John endured in Christ with his people. In Christ with his people. John calls his brothers and sisters partners in the suffering and persecution they experienced. Arm in arm, as a family, moving forward. And then he says, hey, the book got it right. Jesus does call us. Jesus is calling. But he's not calling a me or a you. He's calling an us. You know, I've heard it again and again in ministry. I haven't even been in ministry that long. It's going to keep you awake at the end of the sermon. <laughs> I've only been in ministry for eight years. And I think of the number of times people have gone through seasons of loss or seasons of grief or just hard seasons. Thank you, sir. And they've said to me or they've said to others, I don't know how I would have got through that season or that time without the church. I don't know how I would have got through that season without the body of Christ. And maybe you'd ask, man, where is Jesus in the hard times? Why doesn't he radically appear for me like he did for John? Because, again, living out Revelation 1 in the flesh would be kind of cool. Where, why doesn't he just appear to us to console us? Even just not answer our questions but show up in all his glory like he did for Job or John. Well, we've got the body of Christ available to us always. The question is, do we avail ourselves to it? Are we showing up? And can we just pause and consider this perspective together? Sometimes you may not show up because you're doing good. You're comfortable. And we wouldn't say this, but we're complacent. The other side of the coin is sometimes we might not show up because we're going through it. <laughs> you got chronic pain. 
Steph knows about that, right? Like, you just, I don't feel like putting forth the effort to get there. But I've said it before, you reach another level of maturity spiritually when you realize you don't just go to church for you based on your circumstances. You go because you have brothers and sisters and partners and family that may need you. They may be on their proverbial patmos, needing the hands and feet of Christ, and that may be you that night. And you never know. The life following Christ isn't going to be one that's tribulation-free. But through faith in Christ and hope in Christ, it's tribulation proof. And we do it in Christ and with his people. And when I think of this year, 2020, election year in the United States, it's going to get ugly. I mean, already decorum is a thing of the past. Right? Decency between people who don't think the same, vote the same, that's, been, that's long gone. Right? Division is central to our culture. We have the opportunity as the church in this nation, not just our church, but the church, to show that there's a better way, right, to be a light in a dark place. But a lot of the stuff out there has found its way into churches, right, where many believers find more identity and brotherhood in red or blue or black and white than the blood of Christ. And I wonder if Jesus wrote a letter like he does in Revelation. If he wrote a letter to the American church today, would he remind us that we're not supposed to conform to the patterns of the world but be transformed? And we aren't called to draw lines in the sand, but step across lines in the sand to reach people, right? That the church isn't a place where creeds and colors divide us. It's actually a place where they provide the beauty of diversity because all creeds and colors are under Jesus and his blood. That in Jesus is no longer Jew or Gentile, white, black, brown, red or blue, but we're all one in Christ. And would he remind us that, yeah, my call is to the church, but the church's call isn't only to me. I am the church, and the church exists for the world. City Life Suffolk exists for Suffolk and every of the seven cities in this region. But to come full circle, it may not be a Nigerian prince tonight that needs the money I have, but there are people you're going to pass on the way home that need the hope you have. You're going to drive from here to your address and pass thousands of people that need the hope you have. The hope we have as a church, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, that need the light of the gospel to intersect their life. Thousands between here and your house. But if I can have the worship team come up, we see in this passage, and we should remember that as jacked up as these churches we're going to study in the next seven weeks, as messed up as they were, it says in Revelation 1 that Jesus was right there in their midst. Jesus was walking amidst them, still working through the church. He cares about our condition, but he never cancels us. Like he never throws us aside. He cares about the condition of each of our hearts. He cares about our relationship with him. But what's the purpose of a lampstand? It's to provide light for those around it. But the lampstand, we should also be mindful of, the, the, the lampstand that was in the tabernacle, you had to provide oil for it. You can't have light in a lampstand if there's no oil. And throughout scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be a light without the Holy Spirit in us. The world needs the fruit of the Spirit, big time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are not the norm in our culture. You walk with those fruits in your life, you'll be counterculture without even having to be intentional about it. We'll be a light when we have the oil of the Holy Spirit flowing through our lampstand as a church and flowing through us as individuals. I was reading, as I mentioned, I think last week too, I've been reading through Exodus and 
the instruction God gives Moses for the priests and the sacrifices and the tabernacle, that the lampstand was supposed to be lit continually and given new oil daily. Man, we have that same need, not only as a church weekly to come together and be filled with the Spirit, but daily. I need grace. I need renewal. I need fresh perspective daily. May we do it regularly in the church where it says in Ephesians, Jesus fills everything with his presence. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in this church, even now as we go into worship. If you could stand, because we're going to go into worship. But the church, Jesus is at the center. Jesus is in the midst of his church. And when God makes us new creations, he puts us in orbit around it, right? The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church, as it says in Ephesians. But for some of us, maybe church is like Jupiter, maybe a little further out, Pluto, in terms of priorities, or God himself. May we recognize the truth of Ephesians 1 and respond accordingly that the church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. Jesus, as we follow you, it'll lead us into the church. And God, I pray for anybody here. Man, we're made new creations. But if we're not being filled with the Spirit daily, we're not in steady pursuit, it's so easy to drift back to that me-ocentric model where I'm at the center. I'm the priority. I do things for my glory. And we may not say it with our lips, but it's the way we live. God, I pray that we would live out the reality of Philippians 2 in this place, that as we leave here tonight, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherever you want to do rearranging in our lives, I pray that you would just remind us that if, if our heart is a home, you don't want just a room. God, you're, you're Lord of the house. You don't want just a spot in, in an orbit with, with, amongst many priorities in life. You're supposed to be over everything in life. And God, I pray that you would renew our perspective of just that. And that you're Lord, yes, but you're also Father. And you love us as sons and daughters. When we place you at the center, there's life. That's actually where there's freedom and life and, and love and life abundant. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit tonight would just use this reminder of the centrality of Christ, the centrality of his church and challenge us. Not just to come in these four walls weekly, but then to go out and be the light you called us to be. Again, both as individuals and as a church here in Suffolk and Chesapeake and Portsmouth and Norfolk, Carrollton, Smithfield, even Newport News and Hampton, Lord God. We're called to come in and we're called to go. And God, I pray that every time we set foot in this place, you would fill us with your spirit again so that we can walk in the fruit of the spirit, the boldness of the spirit that we see in Acts, Lord God, and do the work of the kingdom you've put us here to do. So God, I pray that as we worship tonight, that your Holy Spirit will continue to minister. And as we worship, if you need prayer for anything, Dean and Susan would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. But let's worship him in this place. Put him in the proper place in our hearts and praise his name.